Good morning, church family. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this beautiful weekend weather. This weather is too nice to stay indoors. Get out and bask in the majesty of what God has made. And over at the Lee's home, uh, we've been getting outside, working on some outdoor projects, and even getting on our bikes to go for a little exercise and family fun. And so I just, I just want to encourage you as we get started this morning to take time to, to get outdoors and, and do some of those things, or to go for a walk even. And take that time to pray and to praise God for the beauty of His creation. Well, by now, those of you who are regular attenders and members of our church, you've received an email from our pastor team that's letting you know our future plans for reopening the church. We're tentatively planning to open on Sunday, May 17th. And if you haven't taken time to fill out the congregational survey that we sent this week, would you please do that? You can find that survey link in our latest email, or you can go onto the sermon page, and there is a link there for it as well. And if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Harvest. And as you just heard, our pastor team is in the process of shepherding our church towards uh, an opening of resuming meeting in some capacity in the weeks ahead. And we'd love to have anyone who's joined us online over these past months to join us in person once we do resume meeting. But if you're going to do that, we'd ask that, given our current circumstances, that you would please contact the church first and let us know that you're coming. We want to be able to give you the same communication that we've been giving to our regular attenders so that you know what to expect when you come, what our church meetings will look like. So you can, again, use the uh, email Pastor Nick button on the sermon page, or you can call the church office at 515-428-428. 0029. And please just uh, leave your name and a, and a quick message and a phone number for where we can reach you, and we'll get back with you with the details. Thank you for helping us keep everyone healthy and informed and able to worship the Lord together. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention now to the study of God's Word. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew today as we sit at the feet of Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to be focusing on verses 25 through 34 today, but I also want to make sure that we tie it back into what we studied last week in verses 19 to 24. And that's partly why our sermon is titled, A Better Master. It's referencing the very things that we learned last week. If you were here with us last week, you heard Jesus explain that there are really only two ways to live. You can live for self or for God. That's the bottom line. And the way that Jesus explained it is that you could either focus on storing up treasures here on this earth or treasures in heaven. You could have your focus on the light, meaning righteousness, or on the dark, meaning unrighteousness. And you can only serve one master, God or money. His point is that if you're going to live for God's kingdom, under his rule and his reign, and to be about the work of spreading his righteousness across the land, then you must choose to serve God. And that only happens when a person confesses their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus teaches that God is the better master, far better than the enslavement of the pursuit of worldly treasures and pleasures. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's message, I would encourage you to do that soon. 
That is the understanding that we're going to be bringing into our passage today in verses 25 through 34, that you can only serve one master, and so you had better choose wisely. Now, disciples of Jesus are called to serve God alone. And so today we're going to hear how God's rule should change the way that you live. So let's listen in. Let's look now at the text, Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to this span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now that's actually an encouraging teaching from Jesus. He's moving from the importance of serving the right master to explaining how when you serve God, that should shape or change your whole life. He's teaching his disciples why God is such a better master than money or self. And so let's dive into a discussion on this passage. And here's what I want to show you. There are four ways being ruled by God should shape your life. Four ways being ruled by God should shape your life. Now, before we get into the first way, I just want to make an observation and point something out to you. Everyone is ruled by someone or something. Everyone is ruled by someone or something. So if, when, if you hear the phrase, ruled by God, and you think, absolutely not, I don't think so, well, please, please realize that what you're doing is you're just trading one master for another. And it may be tempting to think, well, if I choose not to be ruled by God, then I'm free. No one tells me what to do. And you're right to an extent. You can choose to reject God's rule, but you're not free. You're simply enslaved to another master, self. And now you are responsible for giving yourself an identity, a purpose, and a goal in life. Now you must come up with a worldview that's coherent, logically consistent, and able to answer the big questions of life. That worldview can't include God either, because if He exists then you've set yourself up against him and you're rejecting his standards that are outlined right here in his word. You have effectively put yourself in the place of God. You are your own master, but at what cost? 
Can I show you a better way? Can I point you to a better master this morning? You see, God made this world and everything in it. That includes you and me. And his ways of living are incredibly freeing, and they provide great purpose and meaning for our lives. He provides a worldview that's coherent and consistent logically and is able to answer the big questions in life. And so with that in mind, let me share what he says. The first way of being ruled by God, the way that it should shape your life, we find it in verse 25, where Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So if you're being ruled by God, then you should recognize the purpose and value of life. Recognize the purpose and value of life. See, what Jesus is doing, he's pointing out that life consists of far more than food or drink or clothing. He's saying the logical conclusion of God being your master is that you can be free from the anxiousness of doggedly pursuing after these worldly things. And the way that he's saying this is also pointing out that God has given you life. And that is far more valuable than food, drink, and clothing. So if he's given you life, how much more will he also give you those lesser concerns? He will meet your physical needs. Now, of course, every human being wants to have food and drink and clothing. Those are some pretty uh, common human concerns. But to get to the point of anxiousness is a whole other story. Worry or anxiousness reveals that you're not trusting God to provide for you. It shows that you're forgetting that God has already provided you a body and life, and you're thinking that He's not going to give me anything else. When you live this way, you're reducing the purpose and value of your life to the sum total of worldly pursuits, which is exactly what Jesus has been saying kingdom people must not do. Life is about so much more than simply acquiring earthly provisions or having pleasures and treasures on this earth. You are an eternal being. God has designed you to live for Him, and you will spend eternity somewhere. So what you live for matters. And as we've heard throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the call for disciples is to live for God by being salt and light on this earth. The call starts with obedience uh, to turn from sin and believe in Jesus. And you're here on this earth to serve God by preserving and spreading righteousness across the land. But you can't do that if you're stuck in sin. So repent and believe and get busy living for God. And as you get busy living for God, Jesus says, rather than getting bent out of shape about where your physical provision is coming from, where am I going to get my food or my drink or my clothes? Instead, you are to focus on sharing the good news of God's rule and His reign by calling others to repent and follow Jesus. Nick, are you calling me uh, to walk around hungry and, and to walk around naked while I serve Jesus? That sounds like some Old Testament prophet kind of stuff. No, uh, that's not what I'm saying here. You're forgetting a very important point, which Jesus 
highlights in the next part of the sermon. He tells his disciples to learn from God's provision from, for his creation. Look with me again at verses 26 through 30. Here's what it says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is the second way that God's rule ought to shape your life. Learn from God's provision for his creation. Learn from God's provision for his creation. Can you picture this scene we just read in your mind? Right there Jesus is on the side of the hill uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and as he's teaching about what it looks like to be a disciple, he points to one of the many birds in the area, and he tells his disciples, and he tells the crowds, look at the birds. Learn about God's provision for them. The birds are not sowing seed. They're not reaping uh, the harvest. They're not taking the crops into a barn. Yet God feeds them. Then Jesus gives that insightful question that forces you to think. Are you not of more value than they? And the answer is, of course you are. You're a human made in God's image. And if God cares about the little birds, which are of much lesser significance, then it's logical to conclude that he cares even more for you. But do you hear what Jesus is doing here? He's removing their reasons to be anxious. He's showing them that they can and should trust in God to provide for them. And so should you. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is saying, you don't have to work or put in any effort at all. Does, it, does he say that you can just sit back and, and let God bring you food and drink and clothing like some genie in a bottle? No, he doesn't say that. Think about this. How does God provide for the birds of the air? Well, he does so by giving them the resources to be fed by. He gives them energy to pursue their prey. He gives them the ability to know where and how to acquire food. He creates food for them in order to be able to eat it and water for them to drink it. God provides and creates everything that is necessary for successful eating and drinking, and for survival for the birds and for us. So this doesn't mean that you're exempt from working or doing the labor that's necessary to acquire that food or drink or clothing. But what it does mean is you shouldn't fret or worry about it. God has provided. He can be trusted. You don't have to try to take things into your own hands and control your situation and circumstances to get what you need. Trust God and work from a peaceful, contented heart. Jesus points out in verse 27 that your worry can't produce anything productive anyways. You can't even add an hour to your life by worrying. And in fact, what's more likely to happen is you're going to lose an hour or more by that fear 
and the paralysis that it leads to. And so rather than being paralyzed by worry, you should allow that to be a motivator for you to run to the one who is in control, the one who does have power and who can help you in your time of need. Alistair Groves puts it this way, anxiety is meant to be a highway to the throne room of God. That's not where we usually go. Usually, he says, we turn to a mental scramble where we anxiously try to solve the problem. We frantically scramble on the hamster wheel of anxiety as we think, if I just think about this enough, I myself will be able to keep myself safe. That is a me-centric way of thinking. Anxiousness has the tendency to to turn you inwards and to reduce the world to the size of self. And suddenly, you're in a bind. Right? It makes sense. How are you supposed to save yourself? How can you possibly provide and accomplish the things that only God is meant to do? You were never meant to be in that position. You can't save yourself. You can't accomplish and provide what only God was meant to accomplish and provide. And that's the point. Turn to your master, your heavenly Father, and be free from this anxiousness. God cares for you. Jesus gives the second example of the lilies on the field. He points to the flowers on the ground there growing in the hillside in Galilee, and he says, consider these. Spend time thinking about God's provision for the lowly flowers. He cares for them. He gives them sunlight. He gives them water. He gives them the nutrients that they need in order to grow. And he clothes them in such beautiful colors and splendor. And yet they are temporary, here today and gone tomorrow. And so Jesus says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Again, he's driving home the point that humans who are made in God's image are so much more valuable. Far from being temporal creations, we as humans are eternal beings. We will live forever. Everyone spends eternity somewhere. And to worry and fear about God's provision for your life is to fail to trust God. It's why Jesus offers the gentle rebuke, O you of little faith when he's speaking to his disciples. Fear and faith oppose one another. And we see that often throughout the Gospels. When the disciples are fearful in the midst of the waves crashing into their boat, when Jesus casts out demons and the villagers respond with fear, each time fear is hindering faith. And the call for disciples is to look around and to learn from God's provision for the rest of his creation. That's what it looks like to allow God's rule to shape your life. So do you do that? Do you stop long enough in your days to observe and to learn from what God is doing in the created order around you? To be reminded that God is over all and that he provides for the birds and the trees and the bees, and therefore, he will provide for you. When you allow fear and anxiousness to rule you, you're forgetting the extravagant love of God that he has shown you. 
That's the love that the Apostle Paul waxes on about at the end of Romans chapter 8. Let me just share a couple of snippets from the end of Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 31 and 32, and then we'll skip down to 38 and 39. Listen to God's love in this passage. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then later in verse 38, he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God did not spare sending His own Son to die for you, the very Son who's preaching this Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 6, then how will He not also graciously give you all things? How will He not also graciously give you your daily bread? How will He not also graciously give you the clothing that you need each day? Don't fixate and focus on earthly treasures and pleasures. Instead, trust God. Rest in Him. And then get busy using the talents and the resources that He's given you to be productive in this life. You see, this teaching of Jesus is not an excuse to be lazy or to expect others to provide for all of your wants and needs. We even discussed last week how Proverbs 6 commends the ant who uses the season where there's plenty to store up for when there's not going to be much. And how in 1 Timothy 5.8, uh, those who are not providing for their household are rebuked as being worse than an unbeliever. And we know from Paul's own example that he worked hard as a tent maker to support his missionary work. And that he told folks, look, if someone's not willing to work, then they ought not to eat. So the scriptures make it very clear. There can be no excuse for laziness for a Christian because God has made us to work and to care for his creation. Now, maybe you'd say, well, what about the poor and the homeless, though? Well, we know that our world is full of injustices, one of which is the inequality of standards of living for humans made in God's image. There are many third world countries where the standard of living is just simply atrocious. And frankly, many first and second world countries where there are, are incredible numbers of people in poverty. So what about those folks? And you may be tempted to say internally, well, they're just lazy, and that's the consequences of it. Let me just say that's a pretty self-righteous stance to take. And perhaps that's true for some, but I would caution you against the mindset of, of making a sweeping generalization like that for everyone in that position. We live in a world broken by sin, where injustice is part and parcel of our everyday life. Systems are broken, people are broken, and they become selfish and they hoard up earthly treasures rather than using them to meet the needs of others. And so think about this. What if God has blessed you with abundance so that you can meet the needs of those around you? There's a thought to take in. I mean, that certainly seems to be the understanding of the early church. Look at Acts chapter 2. This is verses 42 to 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. <laughs> Do you hear what happened there? In the early church, those who had more were willing to sacrifice so that those with less could be blessed. They cared for one another in a way that many of us today, I think, struggle to understand. And did you hear what guided their behavior? As any had need. They had their eyes and their ears open to meet pressing needs. Well, why did they live that way? Perhaps it's that they understood the teachings of Jesus from Matthew 25 better than we do. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the end times. In verses 31 through 46, he speaks of a time of judgment where everyone will be standing before him and will be separated into one of two categories, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. And do you know what kind of lifestyle the sheep are known by? Here's what Jesus says. They are the ones who fed the hungry, who gave drinks to the thirsty, who welcomed the stranger, who clothed the naked, who visited the sick, and those in prison. Maybe we as 21st century Christians need to spend a little bit more time in Matthew 25. What if God gave you your job, not just so you could provide for your family, but also his family? Are you setting your sights too narrowly? I mean, think about this. What happens after you provide for your immediate family? Do you store up the rest? What about your neighbor or your brother or sister who has less? That, I think, is a challenging way for us to think. Consider what the Apostle James taught about this. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Wow! Right? It's clear that, that Jesus and his first disciples and the early church took this topic seriously. Christians are to care not only for their, themselves and their own families, but to preserve and spread righteousness across the land. And preserving and spreading righteousness across the land means accomplishing God's will and ways. And God's will and ways are for you to meet the needs of others, both physical and spiritual needs. And all of this it's an outcome of getting the focus off of yourself and off the pursuit of earthly treasures and doing exactly what Jesus teaches next, which is to prioritize seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. Prioritize seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's the third way that God ruling your life ought to shape your life. 
prioritize his kingdom and his righteousness. That's in verses 31 through 33 of Matthew 6. And here Jesus reiterates the call, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your food or drink or clothing. That's what the pagans worry about. That's how the unbelievers live. Those who limit this life to this world and what it has to offer. But that's not how Christians ought to think and live. And he points out that Christians have a Heavenly Father who knows all that we need. He knows how to meet those needs. He is good and worthy of your trust. And when you're ruled by God, then you put first things first, which is seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Now, Jesus has spoken about both of those concepts already throughout His his time uh, in this sermon. We've heard that God's kingdom is the recognized rule and reign of God. God is over all, right? He rules and reigns over all, but when Jesus came to the earth, that rule and reign was recognized in a way it never had been before on the earth. And our call as disciples is to spread that recognized rule and reign across the land. And God's righteousness here in the Gospel of Matthew is highlighting the accomplishment of His will and His ways here on the earth. And so as Christians, men and women who are part of God's kingdom, your first priority is to desire the spread of the reign and rule and will of God across the face of the earth. And I love how Pastor John Stott puts this. It starts with you. Listen to what he says. Such a desire will start with ourselves until every single department of our life, home, marriage and family, personal morality, professional life and business ethics, bank balance, tax returns, lifestyle, citizenship, is joyfully and freely submitted to Christ. It will continue in our immediate environment with the acceptance of evangelistic responsibility towards our relatives, colleagues, neighbors, and friends. And it will also reach out in global concern for the missionary witness of the church. I love how he phrases that. This is an all-encompassing passion and direction for your life, starting with self and spreading outwards. Seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness has implications for every square inch of your life, for every square inch of your ambitions. It changes the way that you relate to your own battle with sin. It informs the way that you interact with other humans that are here on this earth. And it drives your commitment and zeal to see the world hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So are you seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? Starting in your own life, then in the lives of others. Does it drive your commitment and zeal to see the world know Jesus? I want to encourage you to evaluate all three of those areas in your life this week and to see where you might need to allow God's kingdom and righteousness to be first again, or perhaps first for the very first time in your life. Maybe you've been taking sin too lightly in a particular area or two or more in your own life. Maybe you've grown apathetic to the idea of sharing the gospel with your family or your friends or your coworkers or your neighbors. Perhaps you've never really thought much about reaching the world for Jesus and having a partnership in world missions. It's time to wrestle with all of those 
and to align with God on them. And as you turn your attention to God and put Him first, then you are in a position to trust Him to provide for your own needs. See, at the end of the day, you must choose whom you will serve, God or self. Who are you serving? Whose rule and reign are you spreading across the land? And it's no wonder that we're a people that struggle with anxiousness when we live as if we are king. It's exhausting, nerve-wracking even, to have to build your kingdom. You are responsible for everything because you've put yourself in God's place where you ought not to be. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to turn back to God, to repent of self-worship, and instead serve Him. He is a better master. Well, Jesus closes this final section with a therefore, the final therefore, that addresses one last area of anxiousness. This is verse 34. He says this, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus, again, shoots straight with his disciples. One last way that God's rule ought to shape your life is that you focus on today's troubles. Focus on today's troubles. See, worrying about what comes in the future is an unproductive use of time and energy. You don't even know if that will come true in the future. You are unable to control the future. And you are failing to trust the one who has all things in his hands and who is infinitely good and worthy of your trust. Do you remember Jesus' model of prayer back in Matthew 6, 9 through 13? Think about what Jesus' first petition was. He said, give us this day our daily bread. He didn't ask for tomorrow's bread. He asked for the resources, the grace to face what God had for him today. Today has enough trouble for itself. And God has richly supplied you with the grace that you need to face today. So trust him and face today in his grace. And then when tomorrow comes and he richly supplies you with grace, daily bread again, use that grace to face that day's troubles. Learn to trust God like the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to what he had to say in the midst of great turmoil and suffering as he reminded himself of the character of God. This comes from Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the answer for anxiety. Find your hope and your trust in the Lord. Know God and rest in Him. The demands of this world will produce a deep anxiety in you if you do not allow yourself to trust in God and welcome Him as the master of your life. He is such a better master than self. Let's close with a word of prayer. 
God, we just want to come before you this morning and confess that we are so prone to putting ourselves in your place. We are so prone to worshiping ourselves and acting as if we are in control, as if we are the only ones who can be trusted to provide for our daily bread, our daily drink, and our, our clothing. And we get so anxious about that, and, and it's no surprise, right? We've put ourselves in your place. And so we just want to own that right now. We want to confess that this morning. Lord, I want to confess that for my own life. And I just want to ask for your help in changing. Lord, of, of identifying the areas where, where I'm failing to trust you, failing to believe that you are indeed good, that you are indeed in control, that you will provide for my daily needs. And Lord, I also just want to confess and ask for your help in using the, the time and the talent and the treasures that you've given me not to serve myself, not to build my kingdom, but to serve you and to, to serve others, to love my neighbor, to look for those who are in need and to meet those needs. Would you help us as the church to be a people who are generous and kind and loving, who are not storing up treasures on this earth, but are storing up treasures in heaven by loving you and loving others? That's going to take a work of grace in our hearts, Lord. And so we just ask for that. Thank you for your patience with us as we continue to learn in these things. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't spend our time being anxious, worrying about what's to come or worrying about what tomorrow might hold. But instead, we would know that you are good and that you have provided yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And you will provide today and for tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. You are so good, Lord. You are such a better master than worship of self. So would you help us to live for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as we, as we close out our time together today, um, I just want to encourage you, you know, it's the start of a new month. And so at our church, uh, what that means is two things. One, we've got a new memory verse. Uh, so as a church this year, we've been wanting to memorize our pillars, the verses that go with the six pillars of our church. And so this month is purposeful discipleship. That's Matthew 4.19. And so I want to encourage you to get out a note card or use your journal or whatever it is that you have and write out Matthew 4.19 somewhere where you're going to review it and put that into your heart. And even more importantly, to begin living it out. The other thing that it means is uh, we have a new focus for our uh, fervent prayer. So one of the things we wanted to do this year is grow as a church that's praying together being fervent in our prayer life. And so each month, our prayer ministry has produced a handout to kind of guide your prayer life. And so there is a handout on our website, on the sermon page, that you can click on, um, and it's got the focus of bold preaching and courageous evangelism for the month of May. So I want to encourage you to grab that and print it out, use it for your prayer life, allow it to direct how you pray and seek the Lord. You are loved. Have a great week.